I'm Hun Black. And I'm Mimi A. And this is the MSG Pod episode three. Yay! Episode three. <laughs> episode three. Um... This time around, we are talking to the comedian, actor, and podcaster, Evelyn Mock. Yay, Evelyn Mock. <laughs> love Evelyn Mock. We love Evelyn. So we are both really big fans of Evelyn. Um, we, I, mean, I, I, kind of, I kind of got to know her better than I would have done because I was actually a guest on her podcast um, earlier this year, um, Rice to Meet You. Um, so she had me on with her co-host, Nigel Ung, and... We had a really nice conversation. Um, um, I, I don't know if you know, but I've, I, I like... <laughs> one of the reasons that we started this podcast is because I like the sound of my own voice, basically. I'm, I've, uh... I mean, I like the sound of your voice, Mimi. I don't really like the sound of my voice. But Evelyn Mark's voice, she's got such a lovely tone to her voice. I can listen to her has, all day. Um, and I think she does some voiceover work as well for, for Sky, yes. I think. So, you know, she she's does. just got such a lovely tone to her voice. Um which is a nice antidote, actually, to her uh, podcast partner, Nigel Ung, who is hilarious, but, you know, it's uh, she's kind of the opposite, isn't she, of, of Nigel they're, Ung? They're, they balance each other they out. They balance each so. other out, which is good, you know. So, I yeah. think they need... They're a really good double act. I think they, um, yes, they, they bring out the best in each other. And, um, if you guys don't don't listen to Rice to Meet You already, I since, you know, very much recommend it. It's good fun. So there's lots of reasons why we love Evelyn, and she is a massive foodie, isn't she? She is. She, she's got her own separate food Instagram, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it's called Things I Pooped Out, yes. I believe. <laughs> but, but that's not what she puts on the Instagram. No, so she... she <laughs> just so you it's, know. It's the before... It's, don't worry, guys. It's the before pictures. We're not sending you to an Instagram page full of pictures of turds. Don't worry. It's, it's... Gillian McKeith. Do you remember Gillian McKeith? <laughs> Gillian McKeith! <laughs> No, uh, that's that's not what it is. It's all delectable pictures of beautiful food. Um, beautiful food, and I think um, Evelyn. I mean, she's got high standards, hasn't she? I mean, we were going to find that out in our interview, but oh, she's, uh... supremely high standards because she basically grew up with with two parents who worked in the restaurant industry, and her her dad's a chef, and her mum is a larder chef, and by the sounds of it, and um, some of the things that Evelyn makes, you know, she's really fussy about her, her dumplings. And I think Evelyn recreates her mum's dumplings. So that's what she cooks when she misses her, misses, misses her mum. Um, but yeah, you'll see, you'll see pictures of those dumplings on, on things I pooped out. So that's her food page. So this is Heng and I talking to the amazing Evelyn Mock now. And this week we have Evelyn Mock and she is a comedian, writer, actor and podcaster. Hi, hi, Hung and Mimi. I'm sorry, I just have my face full of sandwich. It's really rude of me. <laughs> no, 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 we're forcing you to do this over your lunch hour. <laughs> I mean, I knew we were going to do this, so I should have eaten uh, ahead of time, but I'm I'm a terrible uh, time manager. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> we could have a, like a, a quiz saying, uh, can you guess what Evelyn's eating? Mm. <laughs> should I take a bite? Should I take yeah, go on. <laughs> Can you hear it? Yeah. yeah. Nice and crunchy. <laughs> nice and crisp. Is it possibly Scandinavian? <laughs> a little toast. A piece of yeah, toast it looks, with it looks some Scandinavian, what you're turkey. Eating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because it looks like an open sandwich. I mean, it could just be a piece of toast, but like because you're in Sweden, it looks like you're in Sweden right now, aren't you? I am. I'm back in my uh, parents' house in my um, kind of childhood bedroom. Um, 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's all of these, like, my background is just everything that I owned as a kid. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It, it, it could be much more embarrassing, I have to say. L- listeners, there's, you know, there's Scrabble. Scrabble's always, you know, a good, solid thing to have in the background. Yeah. Um, lots of, lots and lots of books, you know, no embarrassing posters. So, you know, I'm, I'm already in awe, so there you go. Thank you. <laughs> so is, shall we start and, and talk about... Your childhood a little bit, maybe? My childhood, yeah, sure. Uh, my dad's from Hong Kong, and my mom, she is from Ehupe, which is where Wuhan is. Um, and so, the, Home of the dry noodles. Home of the dry noodles and nothing yeah. else, exactly. <laughs> I was going to say. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so she's originally from there. Uh, her family hails from there, but they migrated to India her great grandparents did and so my grandmother grew up in India and my mom was born and raised in India and so both of my parents came to Sweden when they were 19 uh, both to kind of work within the restaurant industry really and uh, then they met here and got married and then had me and then kept working in restaurants and my dad as a chef and my mom as like like a waitress and like a cold cut chef And eventually, you know, had their own takeaway. Like my mom, she would have kind of bouts of unemployment, which was quite tough. And my dad, at one point, he couldn't find a job here. So he actually went to Norway to work. And he did that for like a few years, I think, and then would come back on the weekends. That must have been hard for your mom. Yeah, I think so. That was probably very hard for her. And it was weird because I was like, why does my dad have to go to Norway to work? And I just didn't understand. But then obviously it was because that was the only way to make money. And uh, he's told me like now that he he basically shared an apartment with like several other men. Yeah, that's quite common, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, who who all did the same thing. I guess some of them were from Sweden and some of them came over directly from Asia. And at that time, he, he was already like in his 40s. So he still th- pre- did that. Pretty exhausting then, yeah. Yeah. And I never really realized that impact it must have had on him. So when you see stories about immigrants who just newly arrived immigrants and stuff, that's something that's really common. They they're they're kind of packed into apartments and they live together and you know because there's no other way. And then realizing that your own dad did that, but not only did he do that, like he did that like midlife. He did that when he actually had a family. That's like that's pretty um, sobering and very um, saddening as well. I think. Yeah, I think. When you're in your 40s, you sort of expect... I mean, as you say, he had you and... Is it your brother as well? Yeah, my brother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, you kind of expect things to have settled down a little bit by then. But actually, there's still lots of huge sacrifices made sort of midlife when... Yeah, you know, when you've got a family and you have to be away from them. That sounds really hard. If he only didn't have us, ugh, we just came out and trampled on his life. Was there was there any expectation that you joined your parents in the same industry mm. or was it very much Oh no they they every day they would say don't work in the restaurant business What did they feel or how, what did they say when you said you wanted to go into comedy and how was their reaction to that Um they just kind of had to accept it <laughs> <laughs> I think um because the thing is, like, they, they'd always warn me away from food, like, always like, oh, don't, because it's like physical labor, and it's like, you don't get paid much, and even now when they talk about it, it's like, 
So I heard it first from Dimitri Martin, who's a comedian, and then I've heard it from different sort of sources throughout the years. But there's this thing where they say um, working class parents want their children to grow up to be like professionals. Um, and then the professionals want their children to grow up to be like either, you know, uh, academics or or uh, doctors or a PhD. Um, and then those parents want their children to grow up to be artists. And so he was saying that he skipped a bunch of levels. And that's <laughs> what I feel like I did. I went straight yeah. from working class to trying to be an artist. Um, and I didn't realize how much baggage that would be mean for me personally, but we can get into that later. And that's probably really common with um, immigrant parents is that they didn't necessarily get it because what's important to them is that I have a steady income. And when you're somebody who works in a creative field, especially if you're a freelancer, you don't have a steady income. Um, you kind of have to go and seek your paycheck. Uh, every month and that just seemed exhausting to them and they don't understand why I would choose that rather than you know a secure kind of white collar job where you know you're at a company and then you're there for like x amount of years and then when you retire you get a gold watch and you know you get <laughs> like a you get a raise every year and you get a bonus security. And exactly security financial security and stability um, and so I think still, and to this day, they're still kind of like, aren't like, they don't think I make any money. Um, <laughs> and they they keep saying, when are you going to go get a real job? Basically. Oh, no. And so are you, you trying to do a real job? Not saying your, your no. comedy is a real job. <laughs> After high school, I, wa I knew I wanted to perform and so I wanted to go to drama school but then I was too much of a chicken to do the auditions so all of that passed me by and so I was like well if I'm not gonna be an actor then I might as well go and do something purposeful and so I was like what's the best thing management I'll do something with management and then I just typed in management into the like national search engine for for education that you have in Sweden and what came up was event management. That was the only thing that was still I could still apply for because this was so late in the game. So I applied for the event management program at like a neighboring university and got in. And it was such a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> During that, I was pretty sure I was like, yeah, I don't want to do this. But I finished it because I'm Asian and I'm like, I have to <laughs> oh, kind of finish it. Yes, thank um, me. I did the wrong degree, but I had to get. I had to see it through to the end. Oh and yeah, it was just. It was just painful. Three years, really. It was probably the worst three years of my life. I think. What probably did you do? I did an English degree, which is terrible because oh. now I, I can barely string a sentence together. I think this is the problem why I found the English degree hard, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I sort of don't really enjoy reading anymore. But I'm kind of getting back into it. I'm starting to, you know, uh, read stuff that I'm interested in. But like in terms of like a novel by Jane Austen or whatever, you know, haven't, haven't gone there, haven't done that, you know, for a very long time. So Actually, Mimi, Mimi were at the same university, but we didn't know each other then, because Mimi's in oh, the year really? above me. Yeah. And I was thinking we probably, we, we must have overlapped by two years. And I think the only place we would have met 
might have been outside the kebab van, maybe on on the street between <laughs> our colleges. There, you know, there, so. yeah, there was a van parked between us, and I was there quite regularly. So yeah. yes, we probably passed like ships in the night. So. That's yeah. so but like funny. where we went as well, it's it's a pretty white university, isn't it? Really. So I mean, if there was another Asian, surely it would have like honed in on you. I don't know. That's true. Yeah, I so I don't know. I don't know why I we didn't see each other. There were very few British Asians at my college. I mean, you, you have the overseas Asian contingent who would just hang out with each other and not talk to anyone else because um, they were the ones that were actually paying for the university. <laughs> yeah, and this is the thing as well. Like, I was never really... I didn't really have any Asian friends growing up and actually Mimi's probably, like, my first Asian friend and we met over Twitter. <laughs> we met over Twitter and it was really weird and then when, like, we were kind of quite friendly over Twitter and then Mimi sort of said... Do you want to meet up in real life? And I was just, you know, I was absolutely just horrified. You know, I've sort of said this story before. And I was like, I don't, like, you know, and then I was like, Mimi, do you know, do you know that I'm overweight? She was like, why does it matter that you're overweight? Do you know like, that? I don't know. What? You know, it's just not Tinder. You know, I mean, I know, but like, it just felt like, it felt very precious. That's actually the point of this podcast. We're just trying to find friends, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very, very elaborate, very elaborate way of finding chums. <laughs> <laughs> but Evelyn, you don't have to be our friends. This is a very professional she kind does. of um, Next thing going on here. Next time she's we're going out for dim sum. Yes. <laughs> so, so what what type of food did you grow up eating? Because your parents were from different, like obviously Wuhan and so mainland and Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But I kind of see you as half Indian though, as well, because your mum's Indian. Oh, really, that's true. She? That's true. Mm-hmm. My yeah. mum's Indian. She's probably more Indian than Chinese. Um, she's very patriotic when it comes to India. It would be that we ate Chinese food, like, my, you know, the kind of like, you know, meat and vegetables stir fried together or like steamed egg pudding, basically that. And then, you know, steamed fish and all of that stuff with like rice as a base. But then also my mom would make curry or like kebabs. My aunt's really great at Indian cooking. So she would make tandoori chicken and like Indian desserts as well. Which are hard to make, actually. Uh, Indian desserts are not easy yeah no yeah exactly it's so many steps to them and so many like different little ingredients that you need to get um and so I would grow up with that and like and also a lot of um a lot of like western cooking because my dad he worked out as a chef so he he did both uh, Chinese food and western cooking so we would get like steak and stuff uh, which my dad really likes. So that's why I'm very particular about my steak or very particular about my food in general, because I guess when you grow up with people who like food and people who sort of know food, you can become picky as well. So I think that's what happened to me. And especially with steak. Also, I think I'm the worst person to go to a Chinese restaurant with if you're oh, white. Oh, I don't believe that. Oh, if you're white, okay, yeah. <laughs> because I am so snobby i am the worst i went with my friends to a chinese restaurant in a a swedish town and my friends were like yeah i've heard it's really great and like it's been here since the 60s and blah 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 blah. and i was like well that doesn't mean it's good and like all the dishes came in and i kept asking the waiter i was like is this this is this this and i'm i'm awful because i I do. I know how I am, so I I try to not be that way. But I I judge the Chinese food so harshly, (laughs) and also like just I judge like the restaurant. I judge what the waiters are wearing. I'm like, you guys are pandering to the whites, and it's like, but then (laughs) I'm horrible because it's like then I'm kind of putting a judgment on these people. They're just trying to you know make money. They're just trying to get work, but. 
Yeah, it's it's. I'm a horrible person to go to a Chinese restaurant with. <laughs> Where do you go in Chinatown? What's what's your what's your favorite um, restaurant to go to for like dim sum, for example? In London, in London, so that so we can go. <laughs> I like. I think it's Golden Dragon, the green one. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. And then uh, Leon's Legends for Shaolong Bao. Do you let other people order, or is it like you take charge? <laughs> I mean, if I'm with Chinese people who know their stuff I, I'm like yeah whatever I just want uh, then I'm like I just want this dish like and then yeah. I let, let let them go off uh but if I'm with white people I'm like I have to take command like you, <laughs> you I can't let I can't leave this to you guys it's like just, you guys are be a disaster yeah it'll yeah. be a horrible disaster and a it'd waste of like money sweet and sour pork with um Crispy, chicken and lemon sauce. Chicken and lemon sauce, or crispy shredded beef, and all the dishes would be super salty, and and there'll be like no rice, and it'll just I think it'll, yeah. too much sauce. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Too much of the same kind of dish, you know. So yeah. exactly, you'd out, I can't. You'd, you'd, you'd feel like all in um, imbalance, wouldn't you? So yeah, I can't I feel, let that happen. I feel like we should also ask Evelyn about Wagamama now. About Wagamama. Yeah, why do you hate Wagamama so much? Not saying we we disagree with you. I just want to know why why you hate Wagamama um, so much. Well, it's I mean, I think on the podcast, uh, I have a podcast called Rice to Meet You, and it started with just Nigel ragging on it. But then also, I personally don't like rag- Wagamamas, but then it just became like a thing. Um, <laughs> but I I personally don't like Wagamamas because it's another one of those restaurants that have taken Asian cuisine and made it something that it's not. It's made it white. The thing is, I feel like it's some they they're taking the costume of Asian food um and and just watering it down so much that it's not even Asian food anymore. It's just it just has Asian names and it just has like a few Asian spices or whatever. And then they're selling it as if it is Asian food. And I think that that's really detrimental to what Asian food actually is because then people who don't know their stuff prefer Wagamamas and then they will be extra critical towards like for instance the takeaway who is run by an actual Asian person it's making people have a negative view of those types of uh, restaurants so it's taking away clientele from them and also I think fostering like a negative view of the original kind of is what I feel. And so, and also it's like, it's just, it's not good food, is it? I mean, I have been to Wagga Mama's. I mean, I think, you know, you've had um, guests on your podcast before where you've asked them, what do you, what's your view on Wagga Mama's? It's kind of like a litmus test, isn't it? You know, so when I had really, when my kids were really young, you know, it's quite handy because, you know, you can go and get it's like... It's got great baby facilities. Yeah, oh. and, you know, so it's got great baby facilities. It's got high chairs or it's got these little clippy chairs you can hang, you know, attached to the table so your baby can sit in there and there's a... Space for buggies. There's the crayons and there's a, a menu that you can colour in and, um, you know, there's these little fish nuggets which they call something, don't they? Like it comes with katsu sauce or... Or whatever, you know, so, you know, so it's, it's kind of, I mean, that's kind of a level it's at, though. It's kind of like a glorified McDonald's, isn't it, really? Mm. Dressed up as authentic Asian food. And so I think that's that's the issue for me as well. Like, if it didn't kind of claim, to make these claims towards um, authenticity, I wouldn't have as much of a problem with it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think my issue was this. I remember when it first opened, which was, oh God, was it in the 90s? Yeah, because it was and Alan it Yao, was owned, wasn't it? It was yeah. owned by Alan Yao, and it was actually genuinely good then. And it just seems year on year, it's 
they've progressively dumbed down you know i think yeah he sold what it they off. have now it, yeah, yes he sold did. it off and and whoever's running it now i just i just you know there there is a space for it there is a place for it but it does upset me that for example if you look at the asian food category on amazon for cookbooks it's invariably in the top 10 if not the top three their wagamama way of the noodle cookbook oh my god but like yeah i mean i saw i saw a recipe like somebody actually asked me on the uh rice to meet you uh discord forum like why why do they hate wagamama so much i was like um, and I kind of like sort of said some of the reasons that you said, Evelyn. And then I said, well, this is the reason why I hate it. And it was just, I just literally just Googled Wagamama recipes. And then it came up with um, like a, a fur dish. So, you know, like the Vietnamese uh, rice noodle dish. It had udons in it, but then they called it a Vietnamese ramen. And then it had um, just like mint and coriander on it. And then the person who's, who I was talking to on the Discord um, she said, oh, so how is that supposed to be Vietnamese? Because it's got mint and coriander on it, you know. So I, th- I think that's the issue we have is that, you know, places like this have, you know. That's what Ev- Evelyn was saying about labels. They just yeah. take labels. <laughs> they they matter, don't they? You know, And I think we, we, we go through this quite a lot, don't we, on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's culinary appropriation, if not cultural appropriation, you know. And it's like, who can make money? Who's allowed to make money? Who gets to be an authority on yeah. these things? And invariably it's, you know either a big company like Wagamama's or it's white people. Well, that that is the tricky part because talking about cultural appropriation through food is more difficult because there are chefs who may not be from that country who go to a specific country and learn and train with chefs from there and have a sincere passion for it. And then maybe come back to the West and open up a restaurant and all of that stuff. But the thing is, what, what Mag- Wagamama is, is doing is that by watering down everything and, you know, calling it Vietnamese ramen it's like you're contributing to the fact that to the horrible stereotype that all Asians are the same like all yeah yes you know we're a monolith (laughs) it's a monolith exactly and it's like it's so and some people have said that you know uh, the positive thing is that um wagamamas are kind of that they can act as a gateway into Asian food for people like people who haven't had it before has a Wagamama's and then gets more interested in Asian food. But I'm like, I think you could have a place like a Shurio is a Shurio ramen, which is also yes. like a yeah. ramen place that is a chain. Like you could just have a place like that, that kind of issues people into Asian food as effectively as Wagamama's really. Yeah, which is a similar price point, a similar type of menu. Exactly. Uh, But, you know, does it does it with love and respect and properly? There's no no reason for Wagamama's to be selling things with incorrect labels. There's no reason for it. So Mm. it's the fact that they do just shows that they don't care, which is the issue I have have with companies like that. So you know your point, Evelyn, you know we're saying about how it's not the same as someone who's gone to the country or at least studied the cuisine. You don't have to have gone to culinary school in in, in situ. Um, That is the difference. And that's one of the things that Hung and I talk about quite a lot, the fact that a lot of people seem to misunderstand that what we're objecting to is if you're not Chinese, you're cooking Chinese food, or if you're not Vietnamese, you're cooking Vietnamese food. And it's nothing like that. It's not remotely because you can be any creed, color, race, whatever. If you do it properly, then we love you. And that's still, it's going to be great. Um, and so kind of connected to that, we, um, did you watch the latest Great British Bake Off? I was just about to bring that up because I saw that on Instagram and uh, yeah, the whole bow situation and how how somebody put stir fry into it 
I think the, st- the contestants were stitched up to some extent because oh. a lot of it was led by the presenters and the themes that was directed to them. Mm. It was kind of misbegotten from the start. So it so... was called Japan Japan Week. So mm-hmm. this was Japan Week and so they had three tasks uh, the contestants had to do which had to link back to a Japanese bakery or patisserie or whatever. Yeah, so the first task was what you mentioned, Evelyn, the steamed buns. But the thing is, the steamed buns, they're called nikuman in Japanese, but they're a Chinese thing. And it's acknowledged as a Chinese thing. They just happen to have given it a Japanese name in Japan because, you know, people do rename stuff. Um, And it's it's a dish that, you know, you get during the winter from convenience stores at the counter along with like your fried chicken and your hot dogs. So it's it's a world food thing and it's acknowledged as a world food thing. And so it's very much not a Japanese thing, even though it's eaten in Japan. And so they started off saying, oh, and this is your first task to make Japanese buns. And then obviously they, they, they wheel out all of this, you know, bausi, right? It's it's bao. So um, Matt Lucas, who is you know, not our favourite person anyway. Oh, uh, he's annoying, um, yeah. So he comes on and he says, we're making Japanese buns. They normally have pork and curry in them, but you can put whatever you like in them. So it, it, it was their direction that led to this kind of chaos, basically. What I was saying, so I found different things triggering compared to other people who watched it and found the, the programme uh, problematic. So I found just Matt Lucas even saying konnichiwa quite <laughs> triggering because it's something like people shout at you on the street isn't it or if you're in a bar or a restaurant or whatever it's, it's like it's almost like it's like are you trying to chat me up it's like konnichiwa or you know it's the same as like, nihao, nihao. You know, yeah it's, it's like you know I was talking to my husband about it and I think you know 10 years ago I think it, he would probably have been dressed up as a geisha yellowed up and just as a geisha. So that was, I mean, kind of surprising that he didn't, you know, um, considering his history with um, Little Britain. Yeah. And then I didn't know whether I was just being like, overly sensitive to the language because there's a bit where Matt Lucas says to um, Noel Fielding, who is, you know, a bit of a surrealist and, and things, he says, well, what would you put in your, your bow buns? What would you, what feelings would you have? And he went, human blood. And then he goes, oh, um, you know, this is a family show, Noel. And he goes, okay, dog's blood. And I'm like, oh, is that, is that, are you saying dog's blood? Oh. Because it's a, like East Asian. What, what's, what's the deal here? And, and am I taking it the wrong way? And yeah. I don't know. So all of that sort of stuff was going on a little bit. I can see how he probably didn't think of it that way. Uh, Noel Fielding. Uh, he was just trying to be, you know, no fielding about it. But because we know the history, we would be more sensitive about it. Like, because there are things that I, I recently got a script um, for a character that's a prostitute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that um, it was written with me in mind. And I know the people, they're great people. And um, I'm going to play the character and everything. But one of the jokes was she dresses up as a as like a Easter witch, which is a thing in Sweden, um, that kids dress up as Easter witches and then they go to houses at, asking for candy. And so she was going to do that as a prostitute. And then, uh, you know, eggs are a thing, you know, hiding the eggs and stuff. And so one of the jokes is that she's hid an egg in her vagina and then it oh. just plop, it plops out. <laughs> it yeah. just kind of, it plops out at the end. And it's a funny joke. But then I was like, well, yeah. because I'm Asian, there's a, there's an additional layer to this joke. Like yeah. it can be construed as offensive. But 
they hadn't thought of it because to them it's just a joke even though it's really yeah. crass and stuff i had to tell the director and the writer that and they were like oh shit we we didn't think of that and it it definitely wasn't with that intention and i'm like yeah 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 no that's i i understand that it wasn't but because we just have to consider that because of the race yeah it's a layer of, of sort of responsibility isn't it exactly and i can see how no fielding then possibly didn't think of it because he's white and he he doesn't need to think about these things and and all he was thinking of was trying to think of something less offensive than human blood right exactly so that's, that, that's the comparison he went for yeah but i mean you know to your point it is to do with not always having the white gaze on stuff right yeah realizing who the audience is it's not going to be just white people right exactly <laughs> yeah and let me f explain for i realize now that i didn't need to explain to you guys why that egg thing could be considered offensive but if you have pe listeners who don't because of the history of asian prostitutes basically or asian sex workers um yeah. that ping pong balls and all that ping pong kind of balls thing. and the vagina and stuff like that um uh, which probably derived from like war movies about the vietnam war uh, i don't know if it's like sooner than that but yeah. Well, Miss Saigon, Apocalypse Now, none of those have been particularly flattering or helpful yeah. to the cause, yeah. have they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk to you more about your, your acting career, actually. So, oh, yeah. you, you consider yourself foremost a comedian rather than an actor, or are you a half and half? Or um, I really don't know what I am anymore, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> I, well, I'm a. I'm a stand-up. Um, I started with stand-up, did it for X amount of years, and then just kind of got a bit depressed because of some personal stuff. And I think it's natural that when you're a stand-up and you get an agent, they will start putting you up for, you know, acting stuff. I guess I personally, like, I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a comedian, uh, or maybe I'm just a person who has a sense of humor. <laughs> Um, but I do enjoy acting quite a bit, uh, and I want to kind of pursue that um, as well a, a bit more. Uh, so now it's like I do go up for auditions and stuff. But I, if I'm honest, I think what makes me interesting as an actor is that I have a comedy base. Um, because then I tend to put up for more comedy roles as opposed to... Um, you know, the standard kind of stuff. And it's so interesting because when I speak to people who are just actors, uh, East Asians who are just actors, um, they always t tell me that still they go up for parts that are, you know, um, offensive kind of, that, that asks them to do an accent or, you know, that they're just going up for a part that is kind of uh, a stereotype of what an East Asian or Southeast Asian person is in the West. And I've not had that experience, which is quite lucky. Also, because I think I told my agent that I'm not going to do an accent. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but then also, I will consider it because if it's like, if for instance, like Jimmy O. Yang in Silicon Valley, I think he's brilliant. He's such a funny character because he does the accent with such, um, consideration and detail because you hear that that's a mainland Chinese accent um so of course if the if, part if needs it's relevant it, yeah if it's relevant yeah. but um I think I've been lucky because I've been going up for more comedy focused roles rather than roles that are focused on my ethnicity so 
I think that being a comedian um, who then also does some acting has been beneficial because of that. I was in Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, I was in... Uh, explain to us how that happened. How did you end up in Spider-Man? <laughs> just a... And what was that like? Just auditioning, really. I think they were so keen on making it multicultural because I think they wanted to avoid... Or maybe it was because they finally realized they're like, oh, yeah, like the world looks mixed and especially New York looks mixed. So they they made it very multicultural. And so I honestly think that I got the part because because I was Chinese. (laughs) Yay! That was good. (laughs) Yeah, it, it was set in Queens, but we filmed it in East London. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was quite fun. And then I just ended up, I just shouted at little old Tom Holland. Um, who is tiny, by the way, but extremely really? fit. Yeah. He seems like a nice man. Is Tom Holland a nice man? Was he a nice man? He seemed like a nice boy. Yeah. He seemed super professional. Were you allowed in, in anywhere near him? Or were, were, were all the talent kept away from... Yeah, so, so when we drove up uh, in the car to the um, trailers, his trailer was the first one. And as I pulled up i could just see him he was outside his trailer just working out i was like okay that's funny but then at the set there were like so many extras in that set but because i had a line i was considered what's called a principal so the we were three principal actors and we were kept away from all of the extras (laughs) and so uh, tom holland's little brother was the guy who was tasked to look after us because He's he'd obviously gotten his little brother a job as a runner. The big stars like Tom Holland and Marissa Tomei was there. Um, They were obviously kept in a different place because they're the stars. Um, And on set, like there's a hierarchy. So you're not supposed to talk to the actual talent, which is Spider-Man. So we just did our scenes, all of us. And then... I, I usually don't do this, but somehow I just, I just did it. I just, as we were leaving, I just turned to him and said, thank you. Bye. And he, oh. he was like, oh yeah, bye. And then immediately as I turned, I just, I tripped over like a wire. <gasps> and so <laughs> I, I like tripped and then he was like, oh shit, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh. Bye. And so it was so embarrassing. And it was like, I shouldn't have, I felt so unprofessional in that moment. Oh. But yeah, it was fun. And also like the director, because you can tell that he doesn't really have time to direct the extras or the or the other people who are just around. So we did our take. It took about maybe an hour. But then when it was like time for our close ups, he wanted us to do it in different ways. So he just shouted different emotions at us. So we just had to repeat our (laughs) lines with those emotions. So, so we're like angrier. Exactly. He was like angry, happy, <laughs> excited. Yeah, excited, sad. And I was like, okay. So we just did it, all of that, and it was Amazing. just, and it was just like, okay, this is um, interesting. But it it was so it was really fascinating to see to be on a set uh, of that kind of like a Marvel movie set, basically to be on such a big, grossing kind of movie set to see how everything works because they just don't have time. I mean, it's probably problematic. Um, that it is that hierarchical but at the same time i understand why it's like that because you just are concerned with the people who are the the big actors but uh, yeah i don't know if it can foster well it obviously has fostered some some bad environments in hollywood with everything that's come out but um yeah that was the experience of it uh and it was fun 
When, when did you realise that you were funny, Evelyn? Like, when did you realise that you wanted to do comedy? Like, that you could tell a joke, you could write, you know, lines and deliver jokes and... I don't think I realised I was funny. I think I wanted to be funny. So um, when I, I realised that I wanted to be funny, um, when I was in school, I guess, maybe when I was... I don't know, maybe it was like... T- 11 12 or something like that it was always um because i think i cast myself in that role because i'm so um i watched so much tv as a kid so i i internalized the whole kind of high school um all of the archetypes in in american films and so i cast myself as the sassy best friend basically okay and so i always tried to make my friends laugh um and I think that's how it all started. So there was never like a time when I realized like, oh, I'm funny. It was always like, I want to be funny. So, um, and I think maybe that's still what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be funny. Your first huge show was Hyman Maneuver. And that was a very intimate, very personal show. Oh, yeah. Is that the kind of comedy that you prefer? Stuff from your own life? Or do you know? <laughs> She's shaking her head. No. <laughs> So what really makes you like come to life? What really is your joy moment in terms of the type of comedy that you do? What what do you want to do the most? That's a really good question. And it's got different answers, I think. With Hyman Maneuver, um, it was my first show, my first full hour show. And it was at the Edinburgh Fringe. And there's this thing in um, British comedy where the Edinburgh Fringe Um, the show you take up there has to be personal in some way because it's at the fringe. I think that comedy has kind of conflated with theater. And so it often becomes like a one woman show as opposed to a stand-up show. And so I was under that idea. um, And I shouldn't have been because I hated every moment of it because it was so personal and it was so um, revealing. And I realized that that's not what I do as a comedian because I almost have a persona on stage. Uh, I'm very different on stage as opposed to how I am privately. Um, and I think that my standup for me to perform it uh, works better if I can sort of keep a distance between myself personally and who I am on stage and the audience. Do you find, um, because I know one of your jokes is about being a woman, a minority ethnic, you're bisexual and you're plus sized. And do you hate it when you come on podcasts and then we ask you about all of those those things? Or like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because like, you kind of want to, you're kind of hard to find by those things, but also you want to be able to talk outside of those, those aspects of, of yourself as well, don't you? A bit. I love talking about myself, so I don't mind it at all. <laughs> um, it's great. You're the perfect guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you would, I would just go off. I mean, my whole worldview is is kind of, I mean, it's run through that filter. So anything that I talk about will be because I've experienced the world through that filter. So it's always going to be there. Um and then talking about those things specifically, uh, I don't mind it because I think 
as like an immigrant kid, that's what I've spent most of my adult life trying to do is unpack all of those things. Because I think when you grow up as an immigrant, all of these things affect you, but you don't understand why. You don't understand why you feel that way when you're standing next to your Swedish friend. You don't understand why you feel like you're a little bit worse than they are, you know? And so I think once you grow up and you start seeing the world and you start realizing all of these factors that play in and all of these um, institutional things, you start to unpack everything that you've gone through emotionally. And it's good because it makes you understand your life and it makes you understand the world with that extra layer. But it is time consuming. There's a lot of emotional labor, isn't there? I think when you have to talk about your identity all the time. Exactly. It's a lot of emotional labor. What you were saying earlier, um, relating to that role uh, where, you know, that, where they wrote about you hiding an egg in your vagina. And yeah. Said that, but we understood that. So that's, there's a kind of commonality here because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all Asian. We kind of get what those stereotypes are. You don't have to explain those things. And that's kind of what I had never really had until this year, I think. And I've never really mm. sort of looked for it or searched for it. You know, I only have my family here. I mean, all my family are in, in the States. And I, the area of London I grew up in, there weren't very many... Um, Vietnamese people. I was the only Vietnamese Chinese in in my school, and there was a, a kind of a little group of of Chinese people, and there were the Hong Kongers. And no dissing your dad and you know your half <laughs> Hong Kong, but like Hong Hong Kongers are quite arrogant, I would say, <laughs> <laughs> in the sense that you know Hong Kong, you know, it's brilliant, food's lovely, etc., etc. But they, and, and in terms of the hierarchy that I sort of internalized was that Hong Kongers were the best. They spoke Cantonese, and yeah. because. Um, I was Chinese, I should join their group, but because I didn't speak Chinese, I couldn't join their group. I didn't feel comfortable joining their group. Mm. You know, in the same way, like when I speak to Vietnamese people, I don't feel like I represent like, Vietnamese people because mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred, you know, I'm not Vietnamese, I'm not ethnic Vietnamese, you know, and like the food growing up was, was a little bit of that. Even when, you know, we've spoken to, when I spoke to like one of Mimi's friends, who's a Vietnamese chef and a supper club host, and she said to me, oh, Hung, are you are you Vietnamese? I kind of went, yeah, kind of, you know, and it's kind of, you know, because I don't feel like I own own any of these identities, you know, and so I've sort of always sort of shied away from it. But I think what's happened this year um, is, you know, with the pandemic and everything, I've realised I can't really deny that I look like this, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, if I sit on the tube, people will move away from me or they will, like, you know, look like they might spit on me or swear at me or whatever you know and so I think like this year the kind of the trauma of of Covid has made me reassess things a little bit and Mm. also having kids and their sense of identity and self um growing up has also made me um reassess uh, like my ethnicity and like my culture as well a little bit but my, my main point was that when I saw you Evelyn for the first time I was like who is this woman it's like you know I was just so like pleased to like see you and I was like oh my god you know like well where have you been all my life you know that's kind of how it felt like when I when I saw like Ali Wong I was like oh this is really cool but again she's American you know Mm -hmm. um and so when I found out about you know you I was like oh my goodness and so suddenly I sort of you know wanted to find out what you were doing you know what your comedy was you know and it's like listen to your podcast and and then sort of this kind of uh community that I've sort of come out of this has been a really positive thing so in a way you have brought me 
back to my Asianness, Evelyn, and that's down to oh you. Oh my god! You know, so, you know, so that's a good thing. It's been very sort of affirming, I think. What me. a compliment! That's yeah, like absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Wong. It's fascinating that because just by existing and try, I guess, being in a public space, somehow my presence does maybe mean that to people, um, oh, which is nothing you, that you, I intend representation but... matters and you yeah. are, you're out there representing us in the comedy in the comedy scene so and it's amazing it's really lovely oh, thank you it, it's interesting that because it is that thing of like it makes me proud um to to hear that and to um feel that that like my presence could uh, maybe making a difference but at the it's it's such an interesting thing because as like a minority creative you don't necessarily, at least me personally, I that wasn't my intention to begin with. Like I, it wasn't my intention to like, ooh, now I'm gonna take on the good fight. Um, but then obviously it's reflective in the material that I talk about because all of my material at the beginning, at least, and I guess to some extent now, comes out of some kind of frustration of of how I felt that East Asians were represented in comedy, um, and so from what I then do as material, I try to kind of counteract that. But it's very cool to hear that uh, that it means something because I think you could feel very bound by it or weighed down by having some kind of responsibility. But I think it's more of a compliment. You just realize that there is an importance there in how you represent yourself. But then also that will be reflected upon how the community is perceived because it's just automatic it, and it's just something that you i you know you have to accept i think evelyn i was going to ask actually how, how many languages do you speak like a hundred or something isn't it <laughs> i speak uh so i speak swedish english uh-huh. uh canto um hupe which is my mom's dialect and uh-huh. uh i understand hindi but oh i don't gosh. necessarily speak it um so i so guess you're like, you're like a linguistic genius four and a half basically. i mean i'm because <laughs> obviously we don't know your your levels of ability in the other languages but you're completely fluent in swedish and english and yeah that's more than however more than huge <laughs> population more than most of the world um and, and actually that's something that i wanted to ask you about because obviously you perform and act in both swedish and english mm-hmm. which which do you prefer um, I used to think that I preferred English because it was just a funnier, that's the language where I learned comedy, um, because I watched all of these American stand-ups and I watched SNL and I watched like Adam Sandler movies and all of that stuff. But I've realized recently that I'm quicker in Swedish because it's my, my mother tongue. So I feel like I've maybe done myself a disservice by not Uh, continuing to develop my material in Swedish alongside English because I did a gig recently in Sweden and it was just my brain was working quicker but then also all of these cultural references that I was like oh yeah this is something that can actually end up in the joke and some of the bits that I start like first developed in English actually turned out to just get better in Swedish. A friend of mine uh, Rick Kieswetter said he was like why don't you just write your bits in Swedish first and then just translate them to English and I was like oh I never thought of that um so that might be something that I'll I'll try 
do the puns and things like that work the same? Do, does the language no. similar enough to work? No. There's some there's some sayings and some puns that you could translate possibly, but not really because yeah. stand, like jokes and comedy is so culturally specific. Yeah, I was I was gonna say the like the sense of humor, a Swedish sense of humor and, and an English sense of humor is presumably quite different. Yeah. So, so it wouldn't just be a straight translation. You'd actually have to be. It, it's like that thing about how you know, I I don't know if you know the Asterix books, Asterix and Obelix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know how there's the thing about how the the people that translated it into English from the French did it wasn't just a translation; it was a whole refit because oh. the the jokes that were in French just didn't work if they were in English. Oh. So I guess it's something similar, it's a similar exercise you'd have to do. Yeah, yeah. I think you so. kind of have to write double the amount of work, don't you? You have double because <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind do. of based there and based here and like. Yeah. What 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 language do you primarily think in then? I do think in English, but I I should make an effort to actually think in Swedish because can you consciously switch it on and off like that though? I mean, I'm bilingual sort of, and like Vietnamese only comes up in dreams. Really, it comes in. You know, oh. and I tell I tell my kids off in Vietnamese. That's a natural language <laughs> that I tell them off in. You know, um, but otherwise I'm. Is that just Irish. so that other people don't know that you're dissing your children? Though? No, I mean they know. They can tell with my face. You know, I have a very expressive face, as we all know. <laughs> But it's just certain things just come out in, in Vietnamese. And, and it's probably, you know, when I'm when I'm gone, that will be the stuff that they inherit. It's like the few terms. The swear words. The swear words. And like, why are you dawdling? And be like, oh, meg, why? You know, just it will come out like that, you know. Um, That's funny. So, um, yeah, but I, I, can't, I can't consciously decide to think in Vietnamese because English is, is my, my main language. I'd say it was mm. like 90% English and 10% Vietnamese. Whereas I think you are much more fluent in Burmese, aren't you? I think you're... You think you have much more connection with Burmese culture and, and stuff like that. I've so. got to the point where I'm actually forgetting English. It's very weird. I think oh. the older I get, sometimes I'll have a conversation with my husband who is not Burmese and I'll slip into Burmese and then I'll be like, I can't remember the English for this word. Wow. So, and I, I, I don't know. I think that is just as I'm getting older. I'm probably, I don't know what, I think it's because my, my, my mindset is aligning with my parents, which is horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I am, I'm turning into my parents as well. Exactly. So the kind of the concepts that I'm wanting to talk about is I I kind of only know them or I know them better in Burmese than I do in English. So, yeah, I I do find that (laughs) I kind of slip back and forth and in a way that I can't always control. If you wake me up, I'll I'll speak in Swedish. If I'm really tired, I'll speak in Swedish. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. It's the classic. What is it? It's in all the war movies when they have the people pretending to be German and they slip up because (laughs) they do something that's intrinsically English. So so you'd slip up and do something intrinsically Swedish if we caught caught you in a a funny moment. Yeah, exactly. I'll stay neutral and everything. What do you think about Ikea? (laughs) Oh, I love Ikea. I love it. I'm a big fan of Ikea and I'm not even joking. What's what's your classic order when you go to Ikea? What do you get? Oh. Do you eat, I'm just assuming that you eat in Ikea because I eat in Ikea. Oh, yeah. I, like, I'll go to Ikea just to eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've done, I've done that before as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I. Well, I mean, lately now it's been uh, meatballs, but I need, I need to have mash because the English Ikea is doing it all wrong. We do have mash as well, but the mash isn't very good. It's very waterlogged. But the meatballs, the meatballs are unsurpassed. <laughs> yeah, I go... Do you go large or medium? Yeah, I think I go medium. Which Do you? Is 15. That's very yeah. sensible. Yeah. And yeah. then also the hot dogs. I have to have a hot dog. Oh, um, and they're so good. Yes, and they're so cheap. <laughs> yeah, they're very cheap. But also here, it's like the bread is weird because the bread is cut wrong. 
Explain. The UK is wrong, I think, because the UK you cut the you cut the bun right in the middle, yeah, so that it opens up. But in Sweden, you you cut the bun where there's a separation, you know. So we cut it on the side, yeah, oh. which I think is the right way. But it maybe it makes more sense to cut it in the middle. But I think so, it's just wrong because the so in Sweden you you cut it more like a hamburger bun. Yes. Then. Yes, yes, yes. Because ah. so I think that's right. That's how I would cut it. But like for aesthetics, people like to see the sausage and they like to see the little swirl of mustard down the middle, which is why they, they do cut it there. But I mean, you can't put all the oh. other stuff in there. Like if you have like sauerkraut or onions or whatever, whatever, there's no room to put your topping. So if you cut it the other way, you can put more in, can't you? Yeah. So exactly. the Swedish way makes sense, I think I would say. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. Sweden, IKEA in Sweden is the right way to do it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And everything else is just going to be wrong. Yeah. Actually, it's a really good day out for kids to take your kids to IKEA. Really? I've noticed I'm quite Asian in the sense that I'm not very good at playing with my children. But I will do things like take them to the supermarket with me. IKEA is a phenomenal day out for kids. They can play in each of the rooms and pretend it's their room for like 10 minutes. And that's all kind of free. And you don't really have to do anything. And I'm very lazy. So that's a really, you know, it's a good parenting hack there. Take your kids out. They also like those the, the flatbread trolleys. My kids can fit in those oh, quite yeah. happily. So you can just do racing through the aisles. <laughs> I mean, there is a crash as well, wasn't there, for kids? But we don't really use the crash. We just, like, you know, no, go there. No, no, no. Just, we just, just drag them around. This yeah. is our living room. Let's sit down and pretend this is our living room. Let's play around with the pretend television. You know, that's, that's kind of what we do. How, how, how do you deal with heckles? Do you, do you get heckled? I think if you're a stand-up, like, it kind of gets you going if somebody heckles because you're like, ooh. <laughs> a challenge Let's see. Let's or a just fight. try and bring this guy down you know for heckling. yeah 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 and even maybe not even bring them down but like oh let's find out what they want and it's like you're going up against a professional talker really yes <laughs> so it's like it's a bad idea to heckle <laughs> some people love to do it though well i mean doesn't really get it because the people on stage are the professionals what makes you think you're so funny just shut, shut the fuck up yeah. it's kind yeah. of how I sort of say it but um, if like a show hasn't gone well how do you deal with failure like how do you keep going I eat <laughs> just <laughs> stuff my face um, go buy McDonald's before going home okay so, so a hamburger or yeah. cheeseburger yeah. Or Sarah Milliken has such a great saying which is um, like you can feel bad about it allow yourself to feel bad about it until 10 o'clock the next day and then you have to let it go. Just and move just on, draw a line under on. it. So you eat when you get back from a gig? If I, if I do eat at night, it's like I've gotten a takeaway or something. When I lived alone, I would bake if, at night. But if I cook at night, I mean, it would be something very, very basic, like making ramen, like instant ramen or something. Oh, what's your favorite brand of instant noodles? I mean, the Nissen one. Oh yeah, okay. What flavor? I guess chicken's the most basic one. Mm, I have beef. Mine's beef. Mine's beef oh. is my go-to. Yeah, Mimi, instant noodles. Chicken probably because I like to be able to play with it. I think I find beef could be a little bit too strong. So. <laughs> I tend to put pickles in everything. Basically, <gasps> if I make an instant noodle, I have to put like pickles and all sorts of things Ooh. in it. So um, I like to have a relatively plain base. <laughs> uh, okay, so pickles. for me, when I pimp, I don't really pimp my noodles. Some people go really OTT with pimping their noodles, but for me. I just crack an egg in and recently 
being influenced by all the K-drama that you've maybe watched, Evelyn. Mm. Is I put, I put basically, I put like a slice of processed cheese now on my on my instant noodles. Do they have do that in? Yeah, it's a thing, isn't it? They put basically oh. instant. Um, it's like processed cheese and kimchi. They pimp their noodles up oh. with. So. But, but Evelyn, you you like cooking though, don't you? I like, do. Yeah. When you've got the time. When you've got the time. Not yeah. not straight after a gig, but. I want you to go on Great British Bake Off. I think you should get rid of Matt Lucas. You need to present it. Or at the very least, minimum, your agent needs to get you onto uh, the celebrity version of it. Because you just wipe <laughs> yeah. the floor and you'll be amazing. You know, I just think you really need to go on, on this cooking show. You know, I think you'd be really good. I would love to. Um, I am trying to get my agents in Sweden to get me on the Swedish version. Because I think I would have a stand a chance to get on that. But I think the English version, I'm still too unprolific go on anything like that but yeah i would love to go on great british bake-off and bake like the celebrity version what what would be your showstopper what would you make as your showstopper the thing is i think i'm more of an enthusiast than an actual good baker <laughs> what what's a swedish cake or dessert that we should know about because i don't know an awful lot about swedish cooking other than what we see in ikea yeah <laughs> I guess the most popular is like cinnamon bun or cardamom bun. Um, uh, but I love like Sweden has a lot of good cookies. Like Swedish bakery and Swedish candy is really good. Like they're very good at sugary treats. They have something called uh, a princess cake. I've seen that. Is that the one with like, it's got green fondant on yeah, it? Yeah, the green marzipan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what I find funny with like English cakes. It's that they're everything's buttercream and everything's whereas in sweden it's like cream it's actual cream which i prefer which i prefer too so i just find it too sweet yeah. i can't cope with all this, the, the sugar and the fondant yeah. and stuff that i can't be doing with all of that i just think it's too sweet it's so, so weird i don't know whether it's an asian thing we were talking about it's like one of the compliments we say when it's a good dessert is it's not too sweet <laughs> you know like oh this is nice it's not too sweet <laughs> so what are you doing next evelyn what exciting projects have you got lined up We've been commissioned for a BBC Radio 4 show called uh, Drop the Dead Panda, which is going to be like a sketch show about East Asian culture. And the BBC are so funny because they commission it uh, this year, but uh, the release is going to be next year. So it's just such a, it's just like, you know, kind of bureaucratic thing. Uh, We're going to start working on that at the beginning of next year. The pilot is going to come out in the summer of 2021. Um, yeah, so that'll be fun. So that was Evelyn Mock, who is a comedian, actor, podcast host, all round amazing, wonderful person and a really good egg. Um, and you can follow her on social media at Evelyn Mock. And if you guys want to rant to us about Wagamamas or the Great British Bake Off, then feel free to email us at the msgpod at gmail.com. We're waiting. <laughs> this was the MSG Pod with Mimi A and Herm Black. The theme tune is by David Black and was produced by Vellum Hill. Tune in next time for our very special Christmas Eve episode where our guest will be Nigella Lawson. <laughs> <laughs>